0: From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Tuesday, August 28th. I'm Marco Werman. As Isaac churns toward Louisiana, a typhoon batters the Korean Peninsula. North Korea was only just recovering from previous flooding.
1: And now, having got through one crisis, they've now got this typhoon traveling into their territory.
0: And later, we speak with two Iraq war veterans who also survived the Aurora shooting. During the actual shooting,
2: one of my first conscious thoughts, um, after I covered Jacqueline
3: using my body, was like, man, taking a bullet's going to (laughs) suck. The world is made possible in part by Medtronic employees, proudly supporting the work of United Way. United Way helps build pathways out of poverty by mobilizing the caring power of communities around the world, focusing on education, health, and basic needs. Learn how to help at unitedway.org. And by PBS Learning Media, providing accessible on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. More information online at pbslearningmedia.org.
0: I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. It's official. Isaac is no longer a tropical storm. It's now a hurricane, and it's expected to reach the Louisiana coast early tomorrow. President Obama today urged Gulf Coast residents to take the storm seriously. Now is not the time to tempt fate, Obama said. They know that all too well in North and South Korea, both of which were battered by Typhoon Bolivan today. Nine Chinese fishermen were killed when waves smashed their vessels against the South Korean coast. The BBC's Lucy Williamson is in the South Korean capital, Seoul, where the streets today were deserted.
1: We've had the wind whistling through the cracks in the building here in the BBC Bureau, listening to it piercing and high pitch coming through. Uh, it makes me not want to go out, I can tell you. So it has been pretty bad. It's still pretty bad. Not as bad as it has been for some of the sailors offshore, though.
0: Right. Well, tell us what you know about that dramatic rescue uh, involving those Chinese fishermen.
1: Um, they were the first casualties of the typhoon. There were Chinese fishermen sitting in their boats off the southern coast of Korea when the typhoon came in the typhoon capsized their boats. We have pictures of them clinging to their capsized boats as the rescuers came in with ropes in those huge waves to try and rescue them. South Korea has been very prepared for this typhoon. It knew it was coming. It's a regular typhoon area. Um, It's a developed country. It has money. It has resources. And so there have been some quite considerable preparations gone into this. And I think the rescue was simply part of that, that alert and that high alert that people have been under here. I mean, Schools have been closed throughout the countries. The main roads to the airport have been closed. Flights have been canceled. The army, in fact, was recalled from a military exercise it was carrying out with American soldiers here um, Mm. until the storm had passed. So clearly people taking it very seriously.
0: Right. And some very basic uh, things that were upset. Uh, Over one and a half million homes in South Korea lost power from Typhoon Bolivar.
1: Certainly hundreds of thousands have lost power. Some homes have been destroyed. The four people who we know at the moment were killed on the land here were mainly killed by falling objects, collapsing homes, things like that. Mm. Um, Streetlights have been out, as I say, roads have been closed. And actually, apart from the schools, lots of businesses simply haven't opened today. So I was walking around the centre of Seoul here, and apart from all the branches on the streets and the not so many cars on the roads, lots of the buildings just taped up with tape on the windows and very few... People around.
0: And the typhoon headed to North Korea after doing all that damage in South Korea. Uh, North Korea was still recovering from flooding and a drought. Uh, what sort of damage did uh, Typhoon Bolivin uh, wreak on North Korea?
1: You mentioned the, the, the problems they've been having there. The last couple of months, North Korea's had very heavy rains and flooding which have destroyed croplands, they say, and infrastructure homes, lots of people homeless, the World Food Programme carrying out emergency uh, programmes there as a result. And now, having got through one crisis, they've now got this typhoon travelling into their territory. Uh, North Korean state media have put out a very simple bulletin just saying that the storm has been approaching, but we haven't heard anything yet about the extent of the impact there. And of course, now it's dark here. It may be that we won't know until tomorrow morning exactly what kind of harm it'll do in the north.
0: Finally, Lucy, uh, Americans are closely watching Hurricane Isaac's progress in in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, Can you tell us the difference between a hurricane and a typhoon?
1: Uh A pop quiz. (laughs) As far as I understand it, a hurricane is an American storm and a typhoon is an Asian storm.
0: Thank you very much, Lucy. Appreciate your time. Thanks a lot. By the way, you can see a great map visualizing the storm paths of all typhoons and hurricanes since 1851. We've got that at theworld.org. In Spain, they're dealing with a different sort of disaster. A series of forest fires continued to blaze in the mountains outside the capital, Madrid, today. Thousands of homes had to be evacuated. Now, these are just the latest of some 4,000 forest fires that have besieged Spain already this summer. A prolonged drought has exacerbated the problem by leaving woodlands bone dry. But some say cuts in firefighting budgets have played a role as well. The world's Jerry Haddon reports.
4: Spain's latest blazes have left mountainsides charred black around several villages to the west of Madrid. Last night, volunteers on the outskirts of one town tried to create a firewall by clearing brush. This young man, armed with garden clippers, told Spanish TV that residents shouldn't have to make this sort of last-ditch effort. He said clearing the underbrush should be done before summer by professionals. But because of budget cuts, there wasn't even a fire truck on standby in this area, despite the high risk of fires. The story has been similar across Spain this summer. The result, so far this year, 350,000 acres of forest have gone up in smoke, that's three times more than last year. In July, along the Spanish border with France, near Girona, 45,000 acres burned. Four people died, including two tourists who tried to leap from a cliff into the sea to escape the flames. To control the fire, Spain had to call on France and Andorra for extra hydroplanes.
5: La global integral y la que vive...
4: On hand during the blaze was the Catalonia region's interior minister, Philippe Puch. He told reporters that the economic crisis across southern Europe meant that governments simply can't pay for adequate safety services. Nevertheless, he said, Catalonia was spending more this year than last on firefighting. But since 2009, when Spain's economic crisis began to worsen, Catalonia and Spain itself have reduced firefighting budgets by nearly 20%. Such cutbacks have led to protests by firefighters, like this one in Barcelona this summer. The firemen briefly occupied the regional parliament before police pushed them back. The Spanish government insists the main culprit behind the fires has been a summer virtually without rain. It also points out that many of the worst blazes were deliberately set, further straining resources. Muy it's been hard knitting together a comprehensive plan, said Spain's environment minister, Miguel Arias Cañete, this month, when you have just 70 firefighting planes... There have been days when we've had 19 fires burning at the same time, he said. All the more reason environmentalists and firefighters say not to slash forest protection budgets. The cost in the long run, they say, will always be higher. For
0: The World, I'm Jerry Haddon in Barcelona. We go now to Pakistan, where lawyers representing a young Christian girl accused of blasphemy are asking for her release. The girl named Rimsha, was taken into custody two weeks ago after a local cleric accused her of burning pages from an Islamic children's textbook. The girl's family says she's only 11 and has Down syndrome. Pakistani authorities who examined her say she's 14 and suffers from some degree of mental disability. Declan Walsh is the New York Times Pakistan bureau chief in Islamabad. He says the accusations against the girl have inflamed religious tensions.
6: The cleric, it appears, was instrumental, along with a couple of his parishioners, if you like, in stirring up anger in this locality against this girl. There have been tensions in the community for several days before, on a Friday afternoon, a large crowd, after prayers, gathered around the local police station and exerted intense pressure on the police to charge this young girl with blasphemy. Mm. And that's what happened. The police charged her, and then she was taken away to the prison, as they say, for her safety where she's been held ever since
0: right now this episode erupted shortly before the end of Ramadan and uh, I gather many of uh, her family's Christian neighbors had fled the neighborhood for fear of a backlash how is uh, Rimshaw's family coping with you know what's got to be a really stressful situation?
6: her family have felt that they're in great danger they've actually left that locality and as we understand it, they are currently under the protection of a man called Paul Butty who is what's known here as the Minister for National Harmony it's formerly a ministry that was known as the Minister for Minorities so they're under protective custody at the moment and hundreds of other Christians who live in the same area according to Christian groups have also fled for fear of reprisals from their Muslim neighbours as tensions over this issue have grown. As I understand that some of those people have returned in recent days, but there is still a considerable degree of tension. Christian groups say that Muslim shopkeepers in the area are refusing to sell basic food products to the Christians, uh, and, and therefore those Christian people are now taking charity from local uh, church organizations.
0: Declan, I hear uh, the the call to prayer, the muezzin's voice in the background. What is the breakdown of Christians to Muslims
6: in Pakistan? Christians, Hindus, and a very small number of Sikhs are are a small minority of the population here. Exact figures are difficult to come by because the last census dates back to 1998, but it's thought that approximately 5% of the population here, currently estimated to be about 180 million people, are minorities. Most of those are Christian and there is a significant proportion of uh, Hindus who live in the southern part of the country.
0: So blasphemy is a pretty serious charge in Pakistan and can receive a death sentence. Uh, Rimsha's lawyers bringing forth her mental condition. Are, are hardline Muslims accepting that as a legitimate defence?
6: There's been a very interesting reaction just in the past couple of days. From some conservative Muslim leaders here, who, for really one of the first times, they've come out strongly in defence of a Christian person who's been accused of blasphemy. I think they say that the police should investigate this matter fully, and that if the young girl is proven to be innocent, or indeed she is proven to be a minor, in which case she should be exempt from the blasphemy laws. Well, then the people who brought these accusations against her and riled up all that trouble a couple of weeks ago should be prosecuted, and I think. What's going on here is that there have been a number of these incidences in recent months where mobs of people riled up by these charges of blasphemy have surrounded police stations and in one incident in July actually broke into the police station pulled out a man who's accused of blasphemy beat him to death and then burned his body in the street Mm. so I think even for Muslim leaders or for conservative Muslim leaders this has been seen as a situation that's getting slightly out of control And they have, some of them at least, have joined hands with Christian leaders over the last couple of days and have said that this case should be brought to a conclusion quickly and they are not necessarily calling for the prosecution of the girl, which is significant.
0: I mean, it's a very toxic issue politically, and it's not the first time Christians have been accused of blasphemy against Islam in Pakistan, is it?
6: No, not at all. The country's political fraternity, if you like, is still reeling to some degree from the assassination of Salman Tassir. He was the governor of Punjab who was assassinated by his own bodyguard last year because he advocated reform of these blasphemy laws, and because he supported a Christian woman who had become the first woman to be sentenced to death under these laws. So it's a very politically charged issue. It's also a very religiously charged issue, particularly for Barelvis, which is the majority sect of Muslims here, who hold veneration of the Prophet Muhammad as a really central part of their faith. So the government finds itself caught between the sometimes violent sentiments of people who want to defend the honor of the prophet as they see it, and safeguarding the rights of minorities. And indeed, many Muslims who have found themselves victimized by the blasphemy laws, often at the hands of more powerful people in their own communities who use this law as an excuse to persecute vendettas or other forms of grudges.
0: The New York Times, Declan Walsh in Islamabad. Thank you very much. My pleasure. This is PRI. The World is brought to you
3: by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, supporting the work of Partners in Health, an organization dedicated to bringing quality health care to the world's poorest people and communities. Learn how to help at PIH.org.
0: I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. An Israeli judge today ruled that activist Rachel Corey was responsible for her own death. The 23-year-old American was killed by an Israeli bulldozer in the Gaza Strip. That was in 2003. She was protesting the demolition of Palestinian homes along the border between Gaza and Egypt. Some of the homes were used by Palestinian militants to fire at Israelis or as bases to tunnel under the border. The judge today said Israel bore no responsibility for what occurred during, quote, a military activity meant to prevent terrorist activity. Corey's parents had accused the Israeli government of intentionally and unlawfully killing their daughter. The world's Matthew Bell has more from Jerusalem.
7: Judge Odid Gershon told a courtroom full of Rachel Corey's supporters that her death was a regrettable accident and that Corey herself was largely to blame. Corey was with a small group of international activists near the southern edge of the Gaza Strip. They were protesting house demolitions by the Israeli army. She did not distance herself from the area, the judge said, as any thinking person would have done. Witnesses said Corey was wearing a bright orange vest and that she would have been in plain sight. The Israeli driver of the heavily armored bulldozer that ran her over gave anonymous testimony in court. He said he could not have seen Corey standing in the way. Rachel's parents brought the civil suit against the Israeli military in 2010. Her mother Cindy said the family was deeply saddened and troubled by today's court decision.
5: I believe
8: that this was a bad day,
5: not only for our family, but a bad day for human rights, for humanity, for the rule of law, and also for the country of Israel.
7: Cindy Corey accused the court of shielding the Israeli military from justice by providing its soldiers immunity. She also blamed what she called a failure of the diplomatic process between the United States and Israel. For Palestinians, Rachel Corey has become a powerful symbol for their national struggle since her death nine years ago. For example, plays based on her writings in support of the Palestinian cause have been performed around the world. But most Israelis view Cory's story very differently. 2003 was the height of the Second Palestinian Intifada. The Israeli army says it was demolishing houses in the southern Gaza Strip to deny militants safe haven. Judge Odid today said that Corey and other activists were in effect acting as human shields for terrorists. Government spokesman Mark Regev told PRI's The Takeaway today that Israelis empathize with what the Cori family has gone through But today's decision, Regev said, amounts to a vindication of the long-held Israeli position that it was Rachel Corey who put herself in harm's way. This is on the Gaza-Egypt border. It was was a central combat zone.
4: People were killed there every day. I would say to these activists to heed your own advice of the American State Department, stay out of a combat zone. People were killed that day. Explosives went off, grenades were launched. What was she doing there?
7: The Corey family's lawyer, Hussein Abu Hussein, responded to the charge that Rachel and her fellow activists placed themselves in a war situation. They were trying to stop the destruction of houses without ammunition, without weapons, he said. The only weapons they had were their bodies. The lawyer said Corey's family plans to appeal to Israel's Supreme Court. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Jerusalem.
0: The Mideast hasn't exactly been at the top of the U.S. presidential campaign agenda, but it is a factor. President Obama's relationship with Israeli leaders has been icy, and Mitt Romney's camp is hoping that his unequivocal support for Israel will attract votes from Jewish Americans, who have traditionally voted Democratic. Natan Gutman is a reporter with the Israeli Broadcasting Authority, and he's in Tampa for the Republican convention this week. He says Romney's visit to Israel earlier this summer got good reviews there,
9: Definitely, he got a a very, very warm welcome in Israel. He was embraced by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Um, who officially tries to remain outside the American political race, but definitely I think all commentators agree that he um, favors Romney or at least has certain problems with uh, um, President Obama. Um, the Israeli people also seem to like Romney. Uh, his visit was seen as a positive move, and it also helped the Republicans highlight the fact that President Obama did not visit Israel um, during his first term.
0: Mm. So what did Romney's trip to Israel do to shore up a support for him in this country?
9: Well, that's a tricky question because, um, of course, for most voters, they couldn't care less about foreign policy in general. However, there are certain um, segments of the population. One of them, of course, is Jewish Americans, especially here in Florida, uh, which is a swing state and has a large um, Jewish population it's not a deciding factor for most of them, of course, but they do want to know that their candidate has a good relationship, a warm relationship with Israel, and definitely in that sense, Romney's visit helped him with that. It also helps with another constituency, which is major Jewish donors who want to see Romney make gestures in favor of Israel, Mm. and it helps with the evangelical Christians, a very large segment of the population that is kind of skeptical of of Romney because of religious issues, but cares deeply about Israel, and and of course, they are looking at this visit as well.
0: Well, of course, Romney was electioneering when he was in Israel. Uh, w- what's the concern in Israel that the United States is really more focused on the domestic economy right now and less interested in moving the peace process forward?
9: I don't know how much it is of a concern to the Israeli government that feels, um, my sense is that it feels pretty um, comfortable with the status quo on the issues relating to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict right now. I think if there is something that the people in Israel are worried about is it in, does America, whether it will be President Obama or uh, Governor Romney, do these leaders really have the, have the ability right now to mobilize America into a major military effort in Iran, mm. if need? And the sense of, of many Israelis is that no matter who the candidate will be, in, none of them can take the country with the economy as it is and with the public tired of, of, of the Middle Eastern wars to actually launch such a military effort.
0: What is the breakdown of, of Jewish Republicans and, and Democrats in this country? And I mean, every four years, do, does the GOP uh, manage to win over any new votes from the Democrats?
9: Well, that's definitely interesting. Um, Jewish voters are traditionally democratic. They are democratic mainly because it's a very liberal population. They support greater involvement of of government in providing a safety net to the American people. They support immigration reform. They don't oppose higher taxes. So so definitely there is a strong tendency among American Jews to vote Democratic. Um, President Obama got anywhere between 72 to 78 percent of the Jewish vote in 2008, and that's pretty much consistent with uh, what his predecessors did as well. Now, there is this expectation, even in Democratic circles, that it will shift a little bit, these elections. Republicans hope they can uh, reach 30, 35 percent of the Jewish votes. Democrats feel that uh, they might lose about 5 percent of the Jewish vote. Part of this has to do with the fact that Obama is perceived by some to have a difficult relationship with the Israeli president. And part of it has to do with the fact that Jewish Americans, like any other American, they're part of the general public. And they feel also some of them feel disappointed with the pace of the economic recovery. And that could explain some of this expected shift. But again, we're talking about a very small shift.
0: Natan Gutman, Washington correspondent with the Israeli Broadcasting Authority, speaking with us from the GOP convention in Tampa, Florida. Thank you very much, Natan. Thanks. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, two Iraq veterans who also survived the Aurora shooting on how they've coped.
2: If we hadn't gone to scene therapy either after Iraq or, or now. We might not be able to recognize those triggers and it might be tearing us further apart than one of us being able to snap out of it and say, hey, there's something deeper going
3: on here. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic employees, proudly supporting the work of United Way. United Way helps build pathways out of poverty by mobilizing the caring power of communities around the world, focusing on education, health, and basic needs. Learn how to help at UnitedWay.org.
0: I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. I'd like to introduce you now to two former Marines who served in Iraq. Jacqueline Keevney Later and Don Later were both intelligence analysts. She was deployed in 2005, he in 2005, and again in 2007. They're also married, and they're movie buffs even attending midnight premieres of hotly anticipated blockbusters. Now, that's important to this story because last July 19th, Jacqueline and Don went to see the midnight showing of The Dark Knight Rises at a multiplex near their home in Aurora, Colorado. Yes, that showing. Twenty minutes into the movie, a man began shooting into the audience, killing 12 people and injuring many more. Jacqueline Keevney later and Don later join us now from Denver. Uh, it's been just over a month since the shootings. How are you both doing? <laughs> um, all
2: right, but at the same time, it's still difficult dealing with the after
0: effects, the side effects of the stress that was caused by that night. Uh, let's go back to that night. Give us your take on on the events, the alleged shooter this 24-year-old man entered the dark theater, through a tear gas canister, and opened fire. What did you do then? What happened? Because of both Jacqueline and mine's military training,
2: um, as soon as the canister went over our heads, we recognized it for what it was, the, the tear gas, as you said. Um, yeah. We immediately started to hit the floor.
10: Yeah, it, it has a – tear gas has a very distinctive smell. You never forget it. it was, I mean, as soon as he, he threw the canister, we realized something was really wrong.
0: Now – After the shooting, you both immediately sought counseling. Uh, Tell us what was going through your minds and why you went straight in that direction.
2: Uh, We went in that direction because from our experience of going to Iraq and having received indirect fire, we knew it was something that PTSD doesn't just relate to overseas.
10: Yeah, the longer you wait to talk to somebody, the harder it gets. And you know, with three deployments between the two of us, we've had that happen. Right. You know, I'd we we looked at each other and we said, we can deal with this now, or we can deal with this five years from
0: now. No, right, and yeah, go
2: ahead. Uh, just to finish the thought up, like I said at the beginning of our conversation, you know, we're we're dealing with the side effects. If we hadn't gone to scene therapy, we might not be able to recognize those triggers, and it might be tearing us further apart than. Us, One of us being able to snap out of it and say, hey, there's something deeper going on here other than just, oh, you didn't take out the trash.
0: And, and you have a child, too. So there's a, kind of a, a greater impulse to go see somebody about what to do next. Uh, your, your, oh, counselor, your, your counselor yeah. actually advised you to go back and see the movie, The Dark Knight Rises, and, and you did.
10: Yeah, we had the idea and she definitely encouraged us. Um, to go back and see it. And it wasn't easy at all. But we knew we had to do it as soon as we could. And we went back on uh, Saturday uh, to another Aurora theater to finish the movie with friends of ours. And, um, yeah.
0: Now, aside from knowing what to do with situations of PTSD, how much did your military training and your experiences in Iraq prepare you for what happened that night in, in the theater in Aurora and afterwards. I, I mean, the situations are so different.
10: Uh, they are, and I will say one thing. Um, your muscle memory kicks in. It's this very eerie feeling of calm, and time slows down. And um, You know, I, I, I knew my husband would get us out of there. He's an excellent leader.
2: Like Jacqueline said, there is this kind of calm that washes over you, and it's really surreal. I remember during the actual shooting, one of my first conscious thoughts, um, after I had covered Jacqueline using my body, I was like, man, taking a bullet's going to suck. <laughs> mm. But the training of assessing the situation kicks back in. Okay, what's better, to try to engage the target or go for an exit? And I really credit the Marine Corps' training for helping me get my wife and my friends out that were with me there that
0: night out alive. I mean, one expects ambushes in a theater of war. Had you ever imagined anything like this happening to you at home here in the U.S., much less a movie? Absolutely
10: not. And when you are in Iraq, you expect it, but you're also constantly prepared. You have a weapon, you have body armor on. It's not a surprise.
2: Right. And as I'm pretty sure you might be aware, uh, we did an article for the Daily Beast. And, of course, there's tons of replies from people. And one of the ones that really sticks out to both of us is, oh, well, you didn't stay and stop him. You didn't tackle him. You didn't pull out your concealed carry. You're showing
0: uh, disgrace to the service and everything. That, that sounds got, like kind of an outlier comment, by the way, just to put – uh, There's actually oh, yeah. quite a few of them. There really? is. But yeah.
10: yeah we, I mean, we've gotten a lot of support, but we've also gotten a lot of people saying, well, you know, somebody had a gun. It could have stopped them. And it's not that simple.
0: Right. You know, since uh, the shootings in the theater in Aurora, there have been uh, a couple more shootings uh, since then, the Sikh temple tragedy and last week Mm -hmm. in New York City, to name just two. What goes Mm -hmm. through your minds when you hear about these acts of violence?
2: Jacqueline asked me the other day, she's like, is this just a sweep of violence that's just happening to blow up? Or is this something we actually just has been going on all the time? We really just didn't notice it before and we're more sensitive to it. And I really don't have a good answer for her.
10: No, and and I agree. I'll take the tack with the fact that these are random acts. Gun control, no gun control, it doesn't matter. If people want to be violent, they will find a way. If they can't get a gun... They'll get a bomb. If they can't use a bomb, they'll, you know, use rocks.
2: <laughs> Sharp, pointy sticks. I mean, whatever it is that they can get, they'll do what they want to do. Yeah.
0: Well, let, so, let me uh, let me just push you a little bit on that, because, I mean, the United States is the most armed nation in the world with about four and a half million guns sold here each year. Iraq, uh, according to a recent survey, was actually in fourth place. Uh, but there <laughs> is, a, 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 you know, there was a war. The U.S. is not at war. After Iraq does it feel like there are a lot of guns in the US? I mean, do you know people with guns? Oh, we've owned guns. Do you own guns um, now? No, not right now. Mm-hmm.
10: Um we I I've owned a shotgun, a shotgun for home defense. You know, I believe in the right to own weapons, but it's a very difficult issue to take on with sensitivity to the people that have been hurt. Um in these acts of violence. I mean, it's, it's ignorant to make sweeping generalizations about it, saying, oh, we'll get rid of all the guns and there will be no violence because that is an incorrect assumption. Um, I believe that smart gun controls need to be taken, um, like limiting magazine size, but I'm not sure that would have stopped any of this
0: uh, either. W- what, if anything, would you want people to learn from uh, these tragedies, the, the one in Aurora specifically? <laughs> First of all,
10: and the reason my husband and I are speaking to the media at all um, is that most people are good people, and I don't want to live my life in fear.
2: The The second issue of that is, and the reason we're being so open about our experiences with mental health, is while the opportunity is there for the victims and families to partake In the services that are being offered is to partake in those services. Like Jacqueline said earlier, it's better to deal with it now than to deal with it five years down the road. The last thing that Jacqueline and I want to see is somebody who has problems dealing with the emotions and ending up hurting themselves or others. We don't want to see any more
0: casualties come from this situation. Do you allow yourselves to think about the fact that you beat death in both Iraq and that movie theater?
10: that's a special kind of survivor's guilt Uh, yeah that's never gonna go away um i really object to the fact that some people are saying well you know i'm here because god singled me out and i'm special And, and no it's luck it's training it's random um war is not exactly a random act of violence it makes it easier when you know your fellow Marine has died for a cause, has died for something. It's not senseless. And I think that's why my husband and I feel like we have to talk about what happened to us because we don't want those deaths and injuries to be senseless. I feel compelled to have it mean something.
2: Yeah, almost a a call to action. Um, Having worked with one of the people that passed during the Aurora incident, knowing he was also a a fellow service member, Mm. I don't think... He would have been chill with the idea of me just resting on my laurels after this incident. Yeah,
10: going, glad I got out of there, and now I do nothing. We have to get some positivity out of this.
0: Iraq War veterans Jacqueline Kievney later and her husband Don later. The couple survived the July 19th shooting at the Century 16 Cinema in Aurora, Colorado. Jacqueline and Don, thank you very much for sharing your stories and thoughts with us. Thank you. Thank you. Colombia's drug-fueled guerrilla war has gone on for nearly half a century. The last round of peace talks fell apart 10 years ago, but now the Colombian government seems willing to try again. The two sides have been meeting secretly in Cuba and may soon start formal peace negotiations. John Otis has the story. In a televised speech Monday night, Colombian President Juan
11: Manuel Santos confirmed that talks between his government and leaders of the Marxist Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, or the FARC, are underway. Santos called them exploratory talks to end the conflict, but refused to say more. En RCN, La Radio. However, former Vice President Francisco Santos, the president's cousin, told RCN Radio that the two sides would begin formal peace negotiations in October in Havana, Cuba. If so, they would be the first peace talks since 2002. Back then, the government withdrew troops from a huge swath of southern Colombia to convince the FARC to negotiate. Instead, the rebels used this DMZ to launch attacks and stash kidnapping victims. After three years and no progress, the government pulled the plug on the talks. However, a decade ago, the guerrillas were far stronger and believed they would march triumphantly into the Colombian capital of Bogotá. Since then, a military offensive has cut the rebels' troop strength in half, and they now seem more willing to make a deal. That's Fabian Ramirez, a top FARC commander, in a recent interview with a British TV reporter. He said it's time to end the war. Colombian lawmakers helped pave the way for peace talks in May by passing a constitutional amendment that would pardon guerrillas for many of their crimes and allow them to participate in politics if they disarm. Mauricio Rodriguez, Colombia's ambassador to the United Kingdom, told the BBC that government and FARC envoys may also discuss issues like land reform.
6: So I would say, in general, some social reforms and the the guarantee of a political space for the guerrillas to abandon their arms and engage into politics, traditional politics.
11: Still, Colombians are divided about whether the government should sit down with the rebels. The FARC started out as a band of peasants seeking land reform and social equality. But today, the FARC is widely considered a terrorist group that funds its war through drug trafficking and extortion. Former Colombian President Alvaro Uribe maintains FARC fighters should either be confronted on the battlefield or imprisoned. In a speech on Monday, Uribe said Santos was making a grave mistake.
7: The only thing that should be discussed with terrorists is the process of turning themselves in to face justice. This government has abandoned the people in order to negotiate with terrorists.
11: However, the FARC is nowhere near defeated. The rebel army still has about 9,000 fighters. They have recently stepped up their attacks on government troops, oil pipelines, and electric towers. According to the defense ministry, acts of terrorism were up 53% in the first seven months of this year compared with the same period last year. In other words, the war could drag on for years. By contrast, Peace talks could help FARC leaders make the transition to legal politics, says Colombian Attorney General Eduardo Montealegre. He said, I would prefer to have them serving in Congress rather than kidnapping people and sowing violence across Colombia. If negotiations with the FARC go well, the country's second largest guerrilla group, the National Liberation Army, or ELN, says it too would like to join peace talks with the government. For The World, I'm John Otis in Bogotá, Colombia.
0: Grab your machetes for today's GeoQuiz because we're hacking our way to a jungle graveyard on Nicaragua's southern Caribbean coast. Our destination is a former British trading post that's now an overgrown ghost town. It's at the mouth of Nicaragua's San Juan River, in the 1840s and 50s, U.S. industrialist Cornelius Vanderbilt used the former garrison as a base to ship travelers to Gold Rush, California. Residents of the then bustling town had hoped it would become the starting point of the hemisphere's first transoceanic canal, but Panama captured that prize instead, and Nicaragua's dream turned to dust. What's the name of the secluded former British protectorate? The answer is not remote. It's coming right up in about a minute. This is PRI. The World is
3: Brought to You by PRI with support from the investment firm of Raymond James. Wealth Management, Bank and Capital Markets. Details on finding a local
0: advisor at lifewellplanned.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is the world. Back to Nicaragua in search of that abandoned British settlement we mentioned in our geo-quiz today. Peter Stevenson is our guide. Stevenson works for the Inter-American Development Bank in Managua, Nicaragua. So, Peter, what did the British call this settlement? It's uh, now a ghost town on the southern Caribbean coast of Nicaragua.
8: Well, the settlement was called uh, Grey Town originally, and it's uh, known as San Juan de Nicaragua.
0: Right. The locals call it San Juan de Nicaragua. It's called uh, Town by the British, and it is the answer to today's GeoQuiz. Tell us why you hacked your way into this town. It sounds like it's pretty much all but buried in jungle. What were you looking for?
8: Well, I've been living in Nicaragua for the last four years, and uh, I have some family connections to the country. So when the new airport opened in Greytown, we flew down there and had a look in the cemeteries and uh, found a tomb there that belongs to a relative of uh, my grandfather. This was a lady who died in 1901 and um, was actually uh, related to my great-great-grandmother.
0: So you did find signs of your ancestor, right?
8: Yes, the, uh, the Scott family, which is my mother's side of the family, had uh, originated in Greytown. Uh, I, I don't know if it's my great-great-great-grandfather arrived there in 1853 working for Cornelius Vanderbilt and ran his steamboat company.
0: Right. Well, that's kind of an interesting part of the story. Greytown was a British protectorate, but by the mid-1800s, it was in the hands of U.S. industrialist Cornelius Vanderbilt. What did he hope to do with Greytown? Why was he there?
8: Well, this was a route facilitating access of North Americans who wanted to go from the East Coast to California during the gold rush. So people would um, sail down to to Greytown, get a steamboat up the San Juan River, and then cross a a narrow uh, peninsula to the Pacific Ocean, and then sail up to California. At the same time, that was the the route that uh, Vanderbilt was favoring for the Interoceanic Canal, which is now, as you know, located in Panama but which is now in the news again here in Nicaragua because uh, the government is looking for partners to develop the the canal again.
0: The early 1850s, that seemed to be Greytown's moment in the sun, but then a boom went to bust. Uh, The U.S. Navy burned the whole place down in 1854. Why'd they do
8: that? It may have been um, disagreements with uh, Vanderbilt or with the British. In those days, there was also a civil war going on in Nicaragua between liberals and conservatives, and that's What created the conditions for the invasion of Nicaragua by William Walker, who was really acting on behalf of Vanderbilt, um, who was basically, I think, trying to take over the country to facilitate the whole inter-oceanic canal project.
0: Right. And then to send Greytown into total oblivion, the the canal project went to Panama. How stiff was the competition for the canal?
8: Well, it, it was very competitive. One of the ways they discredited the Nicaraguan option was to show a postage stamp with a a volcano in eruption, a Nicaraguan postage stamp. And as you know, we're a very volcanic region here. Panama doesn't have as many volcanoes or, or any, if at all, compared to Nicaragua. And when that postage stamp was shown around the U.S. Congress it was said that this was a very dangerous and unstable part of the world and not suitable for a a major project like that because of the the earthquake risk. So that's one of the tricks that was played in in order to move the project to Panama.
0: Peter Stevenson works for the Inter-American Development Bank in the Nicaraguan capital, Managua. He trekked to San Juan de Nicaragua, a town known in English as Great Town on Nicaragua's Caribbean coast. Peter Stevenson, thank you very much for speaking with us. You're welcome. Finally today, we turn the airwaves over to our guest DJ from Zambia and Southern Africa, Manasa Piri. He's got a musical treat for us from neighboring Zimbabwe.
12: Today I have some interesting music for you from a young lady called Hope Masike who plays the traditional Shona instrument known as the Mbira. The music is from her new album called Mbira, Love and Chocolate, and here's a beautiful track called Povom Povo. Huh? Traditional Shona folk song featuring Hope Masike from Zimbabwe playing the Mbira. And she says of the Mbira or the thumb piano, the music, the instrument, and the culture. She says it hurts her to see the Mbira being tied down to obsessions with tradition or colonial mentalities that label the Mbira as pagan and unchristian. So, what she has done is to take the Mbira. From traditional levels to higher levels, in fact, put the Mbira into jazz. Because of you, Hope Masike from the album Mbira, Love and Chocolate, taking the traditional Shonambira instrument into the jazz level and specifically into Afro jazz. The last track that I want to share with you from the album Mbira, Love and Chocolate by Hope Masike from Zimbabwe is called Inyoni. And Inyoni is a bird in the Ndebele language of southern Zimbabwe.
5: Don't let your dreams fall
12: La Pezul, a track called In Your Nick, calling upon African women to rise to the highest heights of politics, of business, of whatever aspect of life. Hope Masike, our featured artist for today, from the album Mbira, Love and Chocolate from Zimbabwe. My name is Manasseh Peri. Goodbye. See you next time.
0: can see a video of the wonderful Hope Masike playing the Embira performing the track Be Still that's at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH in Boston I'm Marco Werman. We'll be back tomorrow.
3: The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by the Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org. And by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can, and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. PRI Public Radio International